best to educate ourselves and you, the listener, about all things that creep, crawl, slither, fly, hop, and jump, and swim on this planet one animal at a time. Varmints is on all the social things, and you can find a list of them at linktree slash varmintspodcast. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash varmintspodcast, or use your very favorite search engine and you will find us. Our cast of weirdos is me, Donna, and then there's Moss, Megan, and Kurt. Today, we're interviewing our buddy, Henry Adams, the herpetologist from the Lincoln Park Zoo. Hello, Henry. Hey, everybody. Hi, this is for our first foray into a month-long series of A Frog a Day for a National Podcast Posting Month. And welcome to the show. Henry is the Wildlife Management Coordinator for the Urban Wildlife Institute in Chicago, working at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And we're very, very happy to have you today. Yeah, super excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Henry. Yeah, sure. Yeah, my name is Henry Adams. I'm lucky enough to work with you. I, uh, you know, I definitely focus a little bit on uh, herpetology and I've studied uh, herpetofauna, which is a fancy name for amphibians and reptiles. For a number of years, I've always found them to be super duper fascinating animals. But in the you know larger part of my career, I am a wildlife ecologist. I'm specifically a wildlife disease ecologist. So I really like to study all the different things that contribute to wildlife health and how wildlife health interacts with ecosystem health and human health. Um, and that intersection is a, a concept that is known as the One Health concept that myself and a lot of uh, colleagues really find to be a, a really great lens to look through when we study wildlife ecology. Sounds amazing. That's really cool. It was really funny because I we were about ready to do this frog a day stuff and I said, Do we know any herpetologists? And I said, Well, I know somebody who was an ecologist. Let me see if he knows any herpetologists. <laughs> and it just so happens that <laughs> yeah, you work for <laughs> yeah. you work personally Worked for Dr. Well. Seth for the brain of yes. the show. So <laughs> that worked out super well for us. So hopefully for you too. Absolutely. Again, I'm super excited to be here and thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm, we're really pleased. So let's get to the questions sent in by our lovely bar minions. 
we've sent these questions to Henry in advance so that he can think about mm-hmm. some of them if they need to be think thought about. So our first question is from Chris, <laughs> and he says, "Are some frog skin secretions poisonous in a mere hallucinogenic way?" And he has a picture of Heck, of Homer Simpson <laughs> licking a frog and getting a little <laughs> bit high on it. So, yeah, kind of silly. But, so there you go. Uh- so this is a great question from Chris. Um, so the short answer is yes, absolutely. There are a number of different frogs, specifically toads. So I can't remember if maybe y'all have already gone over this in the show, but um, as some folks, I know that I've gotten this question a, a number of times, like what exactly is the difference between a frog and a toad? You know, is there a main separation? They're all what are called anurins. Anurin is the fancy word for all frogs and toads. I can't remember if it's Latin or Greek, but it basically means without a tail, a neura. So a lot of toads secrete this group of toxins that are appropriately called bufotoxins. Bufo is the scientific word for many fro, uh, many frogs, uh, many toads. Right. And bufotoxins are typically going to be that class of toxins that is predominantly hallucinogenic and can be <laughs> real nice and trippy. One species of toad that many folks may be aware of or maybe have heard of in the news because they are a pretty globally introduced species is the cane toad. This toad is native to Central and South America, but has been introduced to portions of the southern portions of the of North America, as well as Australia, where they're a pretty, pretty nefarious pest species, just because they are so proliferous. But with uh, cane toads, they secrete that bufotoxin that can be extremely hallucinogenic and um, actually cause really, really harmful amounts of uh, hallucinations in smaller animals. It's why it's really important to keep if you live in like Texas or Arizona or some other portions of the southern and um, southwestern portions of the United States. It's really important to keep your dogs away from these really big toads. But luckily, they're really enormous so and uh, pretty chill animals. So it's pretty easy to, you know, keep them. Keep them away how, from your how from big your is Don't be licking toads, people. Right? Don't do it. I pro- <laughs> It's not. It's not a good idea. <laughs> oh shoot! I ju- okay. I just have this toad right here, but I guess I'm just gonna put it back down. Yeah. Put it down, Megan. I know it's put tempting. Put toad down. <laughs> You're not my real mom. <laughs> I was gonna say that. I was gonna ask how big are the toads. Oh shoot! The uh, the cane toads can you know when they're when they're toadlets when they're little baby toads um, they can be quite tiny. But the the adult toads. Um, so I've I've spent a, a large portion of my career working and teaching in Costa Rica and where you know it's part of their indigenous range uh, Costa Rica. And so I've been able to interact with these toads in the wild. And some of the larger ones can be oh gosh I'm you know like the size of a nice like half pound hamburger they can be easily like five to six inches in length they're pretty voluptuous creatures that's awesome voluptuous toads (laughs) and one of the things I think is so cool and it's they're more pronounced on some groups of amphibians but with cane toads and other toads that are pretty darn toxic. You can see them secreting those bufotoxins, which is this very milky substance. It truly looks like they're excreting milk from these two larger bumps on just the back of their neck. And those large bumps are called the parotid glands or the paratoid glands. And they're really hyper-specialized poison glands. All amphibians are in some way, shape or form toxic, but some of them have really developed those poison glands in a really 
concerted way to act as one of their primary means of defense. Awesome. Our next question is from Totally Possum Pod and is the birthing process of some of the frogs, some spawned from the mom's back and the one that vomits out their babies and especially about the famous photo of the baby frog being yacked out of the mom, but that photographer couldn't actually get the pig <laughs> or the pick because of it was unethical or something. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about this. So if you do, please, please, Henry, tell us. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, so from Totally Possum Pod, I think what they're referring to, the first frog birthing process is, is known as the, the Suriname toad. And this really, really cool specialized species of toad is, uh, again, so like what I was mentioning earlier, like toads and frogs, they're all inurins. And the general, uh, it's very much like a, you know, a, a loose nomenclature kind of thing that separates the two with toads generally being more terrestrial, meaning that they live more on land and generally have drier, bumpier skin um, that helps them dry out more slowly. And so they don't have to be around water as much. And then, of course, and then frogs have typically smoother, moister skin. They are more obligated to live in or around water. And that's a general distinction between frogs and toads. But the Suriname toad is one of the exceptions to that general dichotomy there. The Suriname toad is a fully aquatic, quote-unquote, toad that has this really, really fascinating reproductive pathway where the female will place her eggs on her back and a very thin layer of skin will grow over those fertilized eggs oh, and basically cool. she will cart them around and be able to write so neat and be able to protect them throughout um, the maturation of those eggs and then once the eggs are ready to hatch out into the tadpole form it gets a little gnarly and so this frog, this toad is definitely not for the more squeamish of heart and not for the folks who have that particular phobia that's also akin to lotus seed pods. The I can't remember the name itself. Do y'all, I know that y'all are some etymology geniuses as well. The, the fear of like small holes, right? I don't remember what it's oh, called. Dang it. But yeah, yeah. No, trip, trip, Things, trip people don't like honeycombs and stuff, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Lots of holes right next to yeah, each is other. It, is it just like a uh, trypophobia? Yeah, 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 yeah. Trypophobia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sorry, Megan, what were you saying? Oh no. So is it like a is is like a baby Bjorn, but like flesh that they're cart they're carting them around on the back? Yeah. Yes. Basically. And yeah, Chris. So basically, I think Chris said uh, trip trypophobia. Yeah. Trypophobia. 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 Cool. Right. Nice. So yeah, basically the tadpoles, once they hatch out, they are encased in this very thin layer of epidermal tissue, this very thin layer of skin. And they'll start eating their way out of that layer, that protective layer of skin. And so then they will, you know, make these small little portals for themselves and start popping out of the back of the, <laughs> of the female Suriname toad in this really fantastic yet also slightly alien-esque immersion process that I must admit, it took me a long while to become, to, to develop an appreciation for. Um, <laughs> to become a to. And for saying, hey. <laughs> say to become inured to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, I definitely thought that this was a bit of a, bit of a stretch, even for my love of frogs and toads and, and creepy, slimy things. But it's this really fantastic, cool process. I highly recommend going and checking it out on YouTube. 
So it's definitely one of the more unique, quote unquote, birthing processes for frogs and toads. And then I think that the second one that they were detailing is the gastric brooding frogs. And so this is a group of frogs that was once indigenous to Australia. Bit of a sad story associated with another really cool reproductive pathway. So basically, it's exa- the, the name says it all. Uh, these tadpoles are able to mature in digestive tract of the parents. Basically, the parent frogs during the breeding and, and brooding process are able to turn off their digestive fluids and create a safe little haven inside of their bellies for their tadpoles to develop. You know, there are some really famous pictures from the 1980s, maybe even a little bit before that, of a very small froglet emerging from the mouth of the parent. And I don't remember off the top of my head if there are other species that go through this kind of gastric brooding process or if it was just the gastric brooding frogs. <laughs> but they, they're they actually extinct. It was a genus of frogs that I believe contain... Oh, gosh. I think it contained a couple of different species, but unfortunately all of them went extinct, to our knowledge, um, in the 1980s, largely due to chytrid fungus which is a really pervasive pathogen that started causing amphibian declines in Central America and Australia as early as the 1970s and is spread to have global distribution has caused declines in over 500 different amphibian species the world over. And unfortunately, our, our beautiful little gastric brooding frogs were one of the uh, were one of the victims of that particular fungal pathogen. Uh, that, that just oh, made really me sad. so sad because I'd never I'd never heard of this, and I got so hyped at the idea of the barfing frog. Yeah. And now they're gone. That's horrible. Uh, yeah, it's a real sad one of the main, many sad stories surrounding um, chytrid fungus in that particular time period between like the roughly the 1970s and the 19 and the early 1990s. Was it human activity that caused this fungus to spread? So that's a great question and one that we're still piecing, you know, we being the greater scientific community are still really figuring out all of the details of. So it was figured out a couple of years ago that chytrid fungus, um, so there are a couple of different, there are a few different species of chytrid fungi. It's a really, really old group of fungi known as the Chytridiomycota. They've been around for millennia, for you know, millions and millions of years. Usually they are parasitic towards plants and invertebrates, usually feeding off of chitin, which is similar to our keratin, a proteinaceous, you know, structural protein that um, that helps us form like our hair and our fingernails and in and, and our skin. But then there are a couple of species of chytrid fungi. The um, so the fancy, the full fancy name for the frog chytrid fungus is Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis. And then there's a second wow. species called Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans. Yeah. And so the the second one is basically the salamander eater fungus, and the first one is like the frog, um, the frog chytrid fungus. And it's been found out that these fungal species are indigenous to portions of Eastern Asia. I believe that the BD was found to be indigenous to, I believe, Vietnam. And it is thought that the globalization of amphibian trade, um, so amphibians are used have been used for for you know decades and decades um for a number of different well obviously for you know hundreds and thousands of years by indigenous communities but 
in terms of the globalization of, of amphibian trade. They've been used for birth control treatment testings in like the 19, in like the earlier uh, half of the 1900s. American bullfrogs have been globalized in their distribution because they're a really large component of the agricultural industry. They're a really big food product. And it's believed that just through the general globalization of human movement, as well as the movement of amphibians, this pathogen, these pathogens were able to be moved to areas in which they're not native. And the, you know, the idea is that it's called, it's what's called the novel pathogen hypothesis. It's like, it's this idea that a pathogen can evolve in a particular area of the world alongside its hosts, along with its suite of, of hosts, animals, plants, etc. And they kind of develop this symbiotic relationship where it's like, all right, you know, they, the, the host animals, like they'll get maybe a little bit sick, but maybe not a whole lot and allow the pathogen to, you know, keep on going and, it, and they kind of come to an understanding with one another, um, so to speak. But then as soon as that pathogen is moved to a new area of the world in which the host species have not developed that innate immunity, that relationship with that pathogen, then that pathogen can make those animals really, really sick. And so that's what we're thinking we have seen with the various chytrid fungi, with the with what's BD and B sal are the are the kind of like short little the little nicknames that we've given to these chytrid fungi. And so we're thinking that that's largely what's happened. The pet trade, we also it's also believed that the pet trade has built, played a pretty big a uh, pretty big role, specifically in the movement of B sal, that salamander chytrid fungus. So yeah, we. We definitely think that like human movement, you know, the globalization of animal movement definitely contributed to the distribution of these pathogens. And then the subsequent de decline of, you know, our gastric brooding frogs, the golden toad in Monteverde, Costa Rica, um, and, and many, many other species. Dominique's question was, I'd like to know how pollution in the waterways is affecting not only adult frogs, but the viability and hatch rates of eggs. This is a really good question from Dominique. So there are so many different pollutants that can impact frog populations. I guess I can start off with one being uh, fertilizers. So fertilizers are, you know, I understand that people really love to have beautiful, you know, gardens and lawns, but I can't stress enough how important it is to scale back as much as possible with the use of those fertilizers. So a lot of fertilizers have really large amounts of um, of like trace nutrients that plants will just go, like, go goo goo for, right? Uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, those kinds of resources that are generally like relatively somewhat limited in the environment. But when you inundate the soil with nitrogen and phosphorus, you know, that's what's making those plants just be like, woohoo, I'm alive. This is incredible. But unfortunately, we have a real big issue, you know, around the world of pollutant runoff, right? Those fertilizers aren't just staying in your, you know, they're moving into the water table, they're moving into different aquatic environments. And those trace um, resources, that, that, those nitro that nitrogen and phosphorus can cause really harmful algal blooms in aquatic environments. And basically, when those algal blooms happen, you know, it's this really big burgeoning of, of aquatic plant life, but then that plant life will eventually die because it uses up all of the resources in that environment. And then when the bacteria go in and begin the process of decomposition, that whole process eats up all the oxygen in the water. And so this impacts uh, amphibians at every single life stage, be it the egg, be it the tadpole, uh, the larval stage, be it the metamorphic stage, be it the adult stage. 
and not only amphibians, but truly everything in these aquatic environments. And, you know, as you might imagine, um, an animal that isn't able to breathe, isn't able to intake oxygen, isn't going to do too well. And so that's one thing I'll say about just uh, pollutants, one kind of pollutants being fertilizers. There are, of course, also pesticides. And pesticides are generally, you know, we look at pesticides as, um, as like an endocrine disruptor. So it's doing something funky with the endocrine system, doing something funky with the, you know, natural production of hormones for amphibians. And uh, that, you know, jumbling of hormones can eventually lead to, you know, for, say, a tadpole that is exposed to those endocrine disruptors, to those pesticides at some point in its development, will metamorphose into an adult that has just, you know, again, that jumbling of hormones. And those adults are generally going to be less reproductively viable than adult frogs that haven't been exposed to those kinds of endocrine disruptors. I'm not exactly sure, and a lot of this work is, you know, pretty recent um, in terms of like the scientific papers that have come out about endocrine disruptors within the past, you know, decade or so, and within, you know, just the past few years. I'm not really sure, unfortunately, Dominique, exactly how that impacts the egg itself, but I can't imagine that it would be anything good. Again, you know, these are generally just messing up with the whole maturation process and the development process of these animals, which just kind of throws their whole life out of whack. Wow, that's really interesting. Upsetting, but interesting. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. So that, that's like the biggest joke uh, within, you know, my my like professional circles of wildlife disease ecologists and wildlife, you know, health professionals, where it's just like, the things that we study on, on a day-to-day basis and the amount of times that we're like, oh my god, that's so cool at like genuinely horrific or disgusting things is, it's innumerable. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's fascinating, but deeply disturbing, deeply problematic, <laughs> but very fascinating. Well, and that's something I was going to going to follow up on briefly with you, Henry, is I was yeah. really kind of unfamiliar with the as you said, the the prolific runoff of fertilizers, you know, the excessive mm-hmm. nitrogen and phosphorus being problematic because the cycle uh, breakdown with the algae blooms and then breakdown of the bacteria, that's all rubbing oxygen out of the water. And my understanding was that the that the larger problem, or at least the dominant source of problem, were the larger, more uh, complex molecules you were talking about, like the endocrine disruptors and whatnot mm. from the pesticides that were causing right. kind of more of a majority of amphibian problems uh, with the with the life cycle. So, you know, carcinogenic, ter- uh, mutagenic, possibly teratogenic type effects right. from those larger, more complex uh, insecticide type molecules. So mm-hmm. that's actually really helpful. Thanks for, for clarifying, I think, because that's not something I normally think of, just the, the, the gross amount of nitrogen phosphorus runoff also creating an additional problem due to uh, ultimately in the in the chain lack of oxygen in the water right yeah um and it's you know it's not just a i mean that whole cycle of issue is is um i mean you can see it in so many different aquatic environments be it you know freshwater or saltwater environments i mean you know this is a bit of a of a divergence from frogs you know, uh, my, my, my colleague and I were recently developing this really cool graphic. Um, so I'm also a scientific illustrator, and so I do a lot of illustrations and graphic works um, to try and explain these processes. And my colleague and I were working on this really cool diagram that shows all of the different 
things that impact uh, red tide, you know, the Dinoflagellate Carina brevis, which, you know, that the blooms in those organisms is also tied to nitrogen and phosphorus um, and obviously impacts a, a, you know, a maritime ecosystem that doesn't always necessarily, you know, in, in, in impact amphibians most directly since they can't really mess with saltwater too much. But yeah, it just, it continues to highlight the importance of really being cognizant of how much nitrogen and phosphorus you're putting into a system, even in, even in a small as input as your own backyard. And then of, of course, there's so much, you know, there's so much onerous to be put upon the larger, the larger pollutants of the world, you know, big companies and stuff like that. And, you know, making sure that our water treatment um, facilities are functioning the way that they should. But, you know, in terms of what I and, you know, I am often asked, like, what can we as, like, individuals um, do to try and help amphibian populations? That's one of the very first things that I always say is, like, all right, you know, really try and think about what kind of, if you steward land, be it you're renting and you have a little backyard or you have a house with a yard, or et cetera. Really think about the kinds of chemicals that you're using. Not only, of course, not only those, you know, more complex, obviously nefarious pesticides, but even those smaller, you know, those fertilizers and keeping, you know, thinking about really cultivating a more indigenous floral community because obviously allowing indigenous organisms to proliferate that's always going to be better for the environment as a whole you know because they're nice to be there and you know making sure that you allow plants to like return to the earth in the natural cycle all that leaf litter all that really good decomposition provides a huge amount of protection for for amphibians and reptiles and especially, you know, I, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, so I'm I originally, so I'm becoming more familiar with the whole actually like very frigid winters up here in Chicago, but especially up here in more northern areas at higher latitudes, that insulation that leaf litter and decomposing plant matter produces for amphibians and reptiles during the winter months is really, really important. This has been part one of a four part series of interviews with Henry Adams who works for the Wildlife Urban Wildlife Institute and Lincoln Park Zoo as a wildlife management coordinator. We will feature parts two, three, and four in the rest of the month of our Nanopodmo, Napodpomo Frog a Day series here on Varmint's podcast. This show is produced by me, Donna Hume, on land belonging to historically the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho Native American tribes with intro music by Infomercial USA and bed music by Chris Haugen. Our logo was created by Imran Javed. If you enjoyed the show, why not give a couple of bucks to us at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. 90% of proceeds go to the Wildlife Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, Colorado. Thanks for listening and putting up with my little stutters here. I've got a sweet little chihuahua in my lap that wants me to pay attention to him. So, from Hector and I, that's it for now. And remember to be nice to animals. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.